welcome to Talking Bottom. I'm Ange Pearson. I'm Matt Brooks. And I'm Paul Tanter. We are thrilled to be joined today by a British writer and actor of immense calibre. In 1976, he graced British TV in the BBC's iconic adaptation of I, Claudius, and he was in the original 1977 version of Poldark. He's appeared in Doctor Who, A Bit of Fry and Laurie, Rabsy Nesbitt, Spooks, Midsummer Murders Twice, and Life on Mars. He played the iconic Tony Hancock, re-recording lost episodes of Hancock's Half Hour, and in 2019 he encompassed the role of Captain Mannering in UK TV's Dad's Army, The Lost Episodes. He starred as Mr Gibbs in Pirates of the Caribbean, boasting a place as one of only three actors to star in every film in the franchise. Geoffrey Rush and some unknown called Johnny Depp, for anyone wondering. There's barely been a year that's passed in which our tellies or silver screens have been absent of his talent. More recently, he's been in Downton Abbey and The Crown. But to our listeners, his natural habitat is surrounded by leather gimp masks, dildos and nipple clamps in the seedy sex shop Richie and Eddie enter in search for pheromone sex spray. Kevin McNally, welcome and thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here talking bottom with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi. Hi. Kevin, uh, you began your career aged 16 at the Birmingham Rep Theatre. So how did you know at such a young age that you wanted to become an actor? Well, um, I sort of knew it from the beginning, really. I, I, uh, I, I'd done school plays and things when I, uh, when I was very young, and I had done operettas at secondary school, and I, I really got the bug, and I really knew I wanted to do it. So I was very lucky in 1972. I, um, I wanted to join the National Youth Theatre, but um, I didn't come from a very wealthy background. So my family couldn't send me to London for um, the six weeks, you know, and live there to do that. But fortunately that year, a Birmingham Youth Theatre started. I lived in Birmingham. And um, I was spotted in that. Uh, the director of the Birmingham Repertory Theatre needed a child actor or a, a young actor. And... Um, he offered me a job in the theatre. So that, that's sort of how it all started, really. So who, who are your personal heroes growing up? Comedy heroes or other? Well, uh, definitely the two that I've played. I mean, Tony Hancock has always been my absolute favourite um, from my childhood. And, you know, I sort of grew up in my um, early teens watching uh, Dad's Army. And, of course, by the time I got into my mid-20s, that's really when, you know, what we refer to as alternative comedy, the young ones, Fry and Laurie, those people that, you know, they, they were the up and coming people. And I, I'll never forget, really, in, um, in about sort of 83, I thought this is all passing me by a bit. I'd really, really like to, um, to, to be involved in this comedy um, scene. And I made, a, I, I made a real effort to um, get my agent to be seen for these things. And within a very short space of time, I had appeared in The New Statesman, which is where I first met Rick, with Fry and Laurie and um, Joe Brand. So um, I, I managed to sort of elbow my way in, into the comedy world. Were you a fan of The Young Ones and Filthy Rich and Catflap? And, and uh, indeed of Rick and Abe's previous work as The Dangerous Brothers and that kind of thing? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And even before Rick and Aid, I, I had loved his character of Kevin Turvey because he reminded me of, of so many people who came, you know, came from where I came from. Yeah, so you were with Rick on The New Statesman, but was Bottom the first time you'd worked with both Rick and Aid? Yes. Yeah, that was the, the first and only time I worked with them both. It was great, actually, because because I'd met uh, Rick and um, 
we became good friends and also our kids were the same age as well so you know we we sort of shared bringing bringing them they went to the same school at certain times and when bottom came around they asked me to to do mr sex and i do seem to remember uh, rick saying to me he said it's a tiny role but he said but you'll be remembered for all eternity mm-hmm. and um to a certain extent he was absolutely right, and and people still quote lines from the from the from the one scene that I did at me. Yeah, we wanted to ask about that because yours is such a memorable character. I mean, you're in the first episode, of course. Um, yes, which maybe helps that. But um, the sex shop scene is is so so memorable. What line is it that, or lines do you get said to you the most then? Uh, I'd rather have a pineapple inserted inserted violently into my rectum is the one that they like the most. Is there anything I, I can help you, sir? With the, to, or is there anything you'd like to buy to help you with your sex life? That's another one. I mean, I think he's, got, he's got such piss poor customer relations, that, that sexual. He's so rude to the people yeah. who come into this. He, he really is. I mean, the idea of humiliating the character people who come in. I mean, I do think Eddie and Rich do ask for it a little bit, but um, yeah, <laughs> because it was very funny for me because you know it's it's such a thing now, a bottom. But of course, I had no idea what to expect when I went in, and and looking back at it, I, I had a little look at it the other day. Um, it, it, it's remarkable how in that first episode they come to the first episode completely formed with their characters they obviously knew exactly what they wanted to do um and it's a great episode the other thing that was great about being in the first episode i was uh, fortunate enough to be there but waiting to have a pint with both of them while they recorded the end title sequence which was really thrilling i think i seem to think they did two takes um and uh, the second one was just perfect on the one that they used that's amazing. So you got so you, to watch they, them do the silhouetted. Yeah, I watched them. In fact, um, I think it was, was it Ed By who directed. It, I think mm-hmm. um, he put me by. He said, "Watch this." He said um, because it was sort of like cutting edge technology at the time. He said, "You can watch the guys do it, but watch the effect I'm doing." And um, and I was sort of blown away by this wonderful sort of balletic shadow dance that that it that it turned into. It's sort of a, it's a great fond memory for me, really. So as a viewer, um, it was so memorable to see those those titles go up for the first time. Like even yeah. the end credits, there was so much energy and jokes going on in in the yeah. final thing. Yeah. Did you uh, come to do the role through? Just it was just a straight offer. You'd worked with Rick before, and he said, "I've got something good for you." And he sends sends you the script, and you see the the character name is Mister Sex. That must uh, that must have had you. You know, it was, it was intriguing. It was intriguing. I mean, he didn't do it personally, but he asked. He asked um, the producers. You know, he said, I, "I know. I think Kevin should do this part." And um, and, and I think you know, I, he probably had to persuade uh, uh, Aid because I had not met Aid at that point. But you know, he trusted. Uh, he trusted Rick's um, comic chops, and um, I, you know, I, and I sort of thought at the time. I, I was a bit nervous, really, because they, they were both comic icons to me. And uh, I knew I'd have to up my game a bit. And I was quite surprised when I got the script. I, I really thought I'd be some sort of stooge for them. But the fact that he had funny lines as well was just excellent. Mm-hmm. The, the only thing I regret is that they never thought of bringing Mr. Sex back, um, <laughs> you know, which is a damn shame. It yeah, is. Yeah. It is. It would have been great because <laughs> I imagine they would have re- frequented that sex shop. <laughs> I think. I mean, there were all sorts of props in there. We could have had a great time with. <laughs> 
Well, I wanted to ask, is, was there any that you got to take away after, because um, that set is so, <laughs> so, so well stocked. No, um, it didn't. I was, I was so busy concentrating on the work, it, it didn't cross my mind to start nicking the props, no. <laughs> oh, fair enough. I, I don't know what, what prop I could be thinking of that I'd have taken home. Um, <laughs> but, you know, maybe, maybe. Well, I can think of one, but it's not one. my place to stay. <laughs> Um, uh, Only because Rick touched it, of course. <laughs> so, so, what was the kind of the direction and notes stuff that Rick Age and Ed By gave you for this character? Well, first of all, we must say, remember, this is thirty years ago. So, mm -hmm. the memorable bits stand out. The actual sort of day to day. I was trying to think in preparation to talking to you about rehearsals but I, I mean I can't remember rehearsing it I can remember going into the studio and being on the you know on the studio floor and, and being quite nervous waiting for the scene in front of the live audience but I it, it was sort as I remember it was sort of obvious to me what he was going to be like and I, I put in an earring and slipped my hair back and get you know I, I asked for dark clothes you know that he'd be a bit you know I, I, I sort of had that image and, and everyone just seemed to think that was Okay, and um, go ahead. They're very trusting, really. Brilliant, because we thought that it must have been the costume department that would have influenced that, but you actually came to it with the notes of, of what you wanted to be. Well, um, you know, I, I, we, we probably were all on the same page, but mm. I did have a sort of an image of, you know, sort of quite a you know, slicked back, sort of greasy, self-confident guy, you know. And it, and it was there in the writing, you know, mm. because what you have to, when you look back, I mean, the writing is just brilliant. It's so consistently funny all the time. In fact, uh, what I want to do um, this evening is I was talking to somebody about this um, at, at a wedding I went to the other day and somebody was talking about a bottom. And um, the one I really want to watch again, because I've only seen it a couple of times. And of course, it is absolutely genius is them stuck on the ferris wheel that's about to get about to get um, destroyed I, and i remember seeing that and going what an extraordinary brave thing to do to just put your two characters stuck mm. up you know a thousand feet up in the air i mean it's just yeah. brutal. and i love the one on uh, wimbledon common as well yeah mm. yeah, yeah. Uh, two-handers so i think they're my favorite ones as well it's just those two yeah yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> The Ferris wheel one is very unique as well because it all takes place in real time. So it's just, you know, it, it starts and then it just runs all the way through to the end. There's no, there's no like yeah, cuts for, for going 25 minutes. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, obviously, it's easy to kind of look back retrospectively um, at these kind of things. But did you have an idea at the time when you were doing it? Obviously, Rick and Aid had a good track record of sitcoms from the young ones uh, and other and new statesmen and other things. When you were doing it, did you have any idea or sense of, oh, I think this could be something very special? I, I, I did because it was the atmosphere of the first recording. I mean, I think, you know, as far as Aid and Rick working together, the Filthy Rich and Catflap wasn't that successful. And, uh, and they sort of went off and did their own thing for a while. So it, people were really looking forward to them coming back together again. And um, there was an atmosphere the night we recorded it and the, and the audience just really, really went for it. And I thought, this is a runner and this is really, really going to go. And um, 
I mean, it's it's interesting that uh, I, I don't know how long they did it for, but you know, with the stage shows and everything, it it just became part of the sort of national identity, really, didn't it? Mm, yeah, their characters very much uh, became part of the national identity as well. I mean, uh, they're sort of yeah. they're unique in the world of sitcom in that they are fairly sort of grotesque and perverse characters, uh, which you don't tend to get in <laughs> in primetime BBC sitcoms. Um, no uh, and you know and the question we all ask is you know would it even be done today you know um i I think it's highly unlikely but of course they they had forged the way in in unpleasant and 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 grotesque characters with with the young ones and with the dangerous brothers of course but i I tell you what i i also feel looking at it is that in that sort of decade from the time they'd done the, the, well, it's actually less than a decade, from the time they had done The Young Ones to the time that they did Bottom, they were, at the, at the time they started Bottom, they were masters of their craft by then. That there was a little, it, it was all a little loose in um, uh, The Young Ones. I mean, it was brilliant and wonderful and you know, absolutely uh, changed the face of comedy. But they were such masters. I, I'm thinking of things, wonderful things like, Eddie trying to bring himself to look at, um, at, at Rick's thong, you know, when he's lost his thong. <laughs> and that, that thing he does of, of, of looking away and trying to look, I mean, it's, yeah. and it goes on for ages. And it's just, it's a piece of comic masterpiece. It really is. They were just absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And who has, you know, got drunk and worn their underpants up above their shirts, you know? <laughs> you were very much a fan of the rest of the shows then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I was. I mean, we still are. My son, of course, who, who knew Rick well, he has um, a whole collection of DVDs all signed by Rick. I mean, we were just real fanboys of the show and he was a bit too young to have ever seen them live. But he's my son. I mean, wasn't really a thing to take a, a young lad to. And, and I think they'd probably the shows had finished by the time he was old enough to yeah. sort of go to a theatre. But um, he's got all those uh, live shows as well. And we watch we watch them regularly. Yeah. How did he react when he found out you were in this show? I mean, did you show it to him and say, by the oh, way, I I'm in one? I don't know about that. I think he knew mm. fr- from the beginning that I knew Rick and Rick yeah. was you know, was a part of our lives. And in fact, my son was at the male's house just the um, the other day because he's great friends with um, Rick's kids, of course, still to this day. And uh, so I think he just always knew that I was Mr. Sex. You know, I mean, it, was just, it was something he grew up knowing. It was, I don't think there was any particular moment when he found out. Yeah, yeah. I love that idea that, you know, it's like, oh, dad's here. But you don't work in a sex shop. Like, OK. No, no I don't think he had any delusions that I actually worked in a sex shop. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I, in fact, I dread to think of how, how young he was when I first showed him. <laughs> I mean, we God. were all very it was young. bad parenting. Yeah, huh? it's it, good parenting. It's good parenting. <laughs> Is it good? Definitely. Good. Thank you. I'm. Uh, thank you for the support. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was eight when I first watched Bottom. Um, oh, really? Wow. Definitely made me it's, a it's better young, person. I think. <laughs> That's, yeah. I, I'll have to ask um, David later when you first saw Bottom. I, It'll probably really shock me the answer. I don't yeah. know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's the probably really younger than eight. Stuff. The really rude yeah. stuff goes over your head when you're that young. But um... I think, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's, um, it's, it is rude, but it's harmless rude, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you it's mentioned good. that you, 
It is good rude, exactly. Mm. You mentioned that you were um, a bit nervous prior to your performance, but we've actually heard previously that Rick would get quite nervous before um, performing. Did you were you aware of that at the time when you were filming at Smells or? He did. I know. I remember it more from the New Statesman actually, because um, I remember I went and did my first scene with him in the New Statesman, mm. and he was quite nervous. And I, I was actually. Um, I don't show my nerves very much. And I went in and I did quite a good first take. And he did look at me and he go, oh, cool as a cucumber, Mr. McNally, he said. <laughs> he, and, you know, and, and famously, of course, the just the energy he put in and directing that, that nervousness, that nervous energy he had, is what made him have to change his costume every every other scene because um he would literally be drenched in sweat um <laughs> with the sheer effort of, of performing and and directing that energy and one of the intimidating things of course of doing bottom was just the energy of the two of them you know uh, to 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 a straight actor uh you think jesus christ was <laughs> save save a bit for the end you know but they started at 150 miles an hour and they ended at 175 you know did you ever find yourself in danger of corpsing at any point when you were in the scene with them? I'm thinking well, specifically Rick grabs the dildo. Yes, I, of course. And in fact, the end of the scene, I do laugh because I think Rick did, did something incredibly rude in the doorway. And I did say to the, the director, I said, um, I really laughed at the end of that. And he said, well, he said, I, I, yeah, I did get that. And I might use it because I think you're just laughing at how stupid they are. And I said, <laughs> but you know that I wasn't. I was laughing at Rick being rude. And he went, yeah, but the audience worked. Did. You know? <laughs> so it's one of those it's one of those corpses that stayed in in the episode. Yeah. Yeah, there it, you do. You laugh, don't you? At, um, Rick yeah. Playing with the with the whatever the hell that device is that he grabs on the way out. The yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is that? It's just it looks like a bunch of like tape or something. It's just some sort of suspenders, some leather gear. <laughs> uh, it's that. it's some kind of yeah, sort of body strap or something. I think it was. I always thought it was. It, 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 have you ever seen the the film Anvil? No. Anvil, the, the story of Anvil. Yeah. Yes. I think it's what that singer used to wear, you know, the, the leather <laughs> cross thing. I think it's one of those because he, he was into wearing bondage wear. So it was that, you know, usual sort of stuff. They tell yeah. me. I don't yeah, know. That, that show, that have, show yeah. yeah, I mean, that's quite early on in that film. You get an unsolicited nude of the man just pop up on screen like, oh, oh, OK. Yeah, it's, it's a good documentary. Watch it. Oh, it's great. It's a great <laughs> documentary. I mean, it's, it's sad and difficult, but yeah, yeah. really good. You have such a great wry smile throughout the scene with Richie and Eddie and their adolescent embarrassment in the sex shop. Have you got any memories of similar escapades in your own youth entering such establishments? Um, <laughs> that is a leading question. I, I do remember um, the first time at drama school, me and my girlfriend venturing into a sex shop. And of course, um, I always found it um hideously embarrassing i mean i i you know i i've just hated it i remember and i suppose i thought back to doing that when i played mr sex because i remember that the that when we went into this uh, this shop i think it was to i don't know how much i should say of this but i think it was to get there was a there were tablets called taurus that would just complete rip off that was supposed to give a man longevity. Mm -hmm. And I was a very young man at the time. And um, I remember that the, the man in the shop did absolutely nothing to put me at my ease <laughs> and sort of had a sort of a smile of like, I know what your bloody problem is. Yeah. And I thought, 
But I thought, well, I, I think I might use it. You know, that he's just, the man's an ass, really. Yeah. I mean, Mr. Sex is an ass. Yeah, it's so well observed. That, mm, um, yeah. that character of, of someone who's obviously completely unembarrassed because he's working in this shop and yeah, he works there, yeah. all the time and that's just, you mm. know, that's his, uh, you know, bread and butter, as it were. And <laughs> for these yes. like, adolescents to come in feeling, you know, really, really intimidated. Um, but then, of course, Richie pretends he's not. Um, and that's where the humour comes from. It's yes. But, but I, I, the, the line I couldn't ever, they couldn't put the camera on me when he said it was... Um, we are men of science. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that. And also, the, I, I love Aid's thing about, um, uh, so this is a sex shop, is it? I love 10 Quidsworth or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> he said, you know, I've never, never heard that one before. before. Yeah. yeah, never heard that one before. <laughs> And then the and then with the retort to the pineapple inserted violently into your rectum and and AIDS yeah. perfect you've been working yeah. here too been long, here mate. too long mate yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh god I'm gonna have to watch it again tonight I really am I'm gonna have to have a bottom marathon were you aware that Bottom's inspiration was partly due to Rick and Aid appearing in Waiting for Godot. They did the show, I think, around the same time they did the first series of Bottom, and there's often they did yes I remember when they did it with. Um, with Christopher, Christopher Ryan. Ryan. With Christopher Ryan, yeah, yeah. Can you see I, similarities and comparisons? Yes, I think there is. There's a lot of slapstick in, in Godot, isn't there? Um, I hadn't really thought about that, but yes, they are contemporaneous, the, 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 the stage show and, and the, first, uh, the first bottom. So I can see that now, but I wasn't aware of that at the time, no. Did you get a chance to see them perform, perform the show? Uh, I didn't because I was on stage at the same time, so I ne ah. I'd never got to see them do Waiting Butter, which is, uh, I, I would love to have seen it. I really would have. Yeah, it's the, it's the thing I'm going to do when I when they crack time travel. It's what I'm going to go. Is it really? I'm go see. It's, it's my biggest oh. thing I, I missed well, out it, on. When they crack time travel, um, if they crack it in time for me, do give us a call and I'll come with you. Okay, yeah, sure. we'll all go. Book a couple of tickets, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, you're in a scene with one of the most visual knob gags ever committed to, to TV, yeah. maybe. Do you think Bottom gets a bit of an unfair reputation as being predominantly toilet humour when its writing thing is so clever beyond just knob gags? Yeah, yes. It, if that's the case, <clears throat> that it has that reputation. I mean, you know, knob gags and rude gags are obviously a, a part of it, but there is, there's so much more than that. I mean, it's such a great uh, sort of... The, as as I was talking about Aid's reaction to the thong, you know, there's there's <clears throat> real comic mastery in it, and th th they were prolific writers. I mean, if you think about those, what is it, eighteen episodes, written in quite a short mm. space of time, and then the and then the three is it three stage shows? Five. Is it five? Was it five stage shows? Well, and a feature film. Uh, uh, oh, uh, the hotel. What was it called? Guesthouse Paradiso. Guesthouse Paradiso. Yeah. Um, just prolific. I mean, absolutely prolific. But of course, you know, they, they were men of my generation and we grew up on knob gags, you know. So um, <laughs> why, why would you not, when you become a very famous comedian, use your, your best knob gags, you know? What do you think the secret to the show's success was and made it unique? Do you think it was the cartoon violence, the slapstick or the, the nihilism that sort of pervaded it? Well, apart from that, it was tremendously well-written and was genuinely very funny. I think uh, it, they were continuing what they did with the young, or, or well, although they didn't write the young ones, but um, they were continuing the notion of uh, anarchic humour and uh, grotesquerie and uh, slapstick. I mean, they, they, 
you know, they, they just allowed themselves to take whatever they wanted to put into it. You know, there was no question of uh, style or taste. It sort of developed its own style and lack of taste. Uh, for itself and and is and is um beautiful because of that and i know that you know I, people of my son's generation they uh, they adore the show they, they weren't born when i recorded that uh, that first episode but i know that you know he they they talk about bottom all the time and and in a way as humor changes I think a lot of young people go, well, why, why can't we have this, you know? Because I think in a sort of a way, television comedy anyway, uh, sort of shortchanges them a little bit. And that's why they discover people who they love on the internet more now than they would, you know, on mainstream television. So it doesn't surprise you that 30 years later, it's still celebrated and people still ask you about it and so forth. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, and it, it's a little bit like... Um, I would say about music, you know, um, when I find myself complaining about maybe modern music, um, my retort is always, yes, I know that the older generation always said that modern music is crap, but we happen to be the first generation who are right. And I feel the same thing. I feel the same thing about, about comedy. I mean, there's a lot of very anodyne comedy. about. There's a lot of really good comedy as well. But there was a sense there in the early 90s with Bottom that... Um, there was, there was nothing that they couldn't do. It was uh, just brilliant, I think. Yeah. So free and released and confident and, and to use that word, funny. <laughs> Did you ever see the first drafts of the script for that particular episode? Did you ever see an earlier draft? And the reason I ask this is because you got I, it. <laughs> I have Rick Mail's first draft script here. Oh, wow. Actually, I, I acquired this uh, a while ago in which... I don't know if you knew this. So if you knew this, if you don't know this, I'm quite pleased to be able to inform you of this. But Mr. Yeah. Sachs actually in the first draft appeared in the final scene. So the episode goes, they visit they visit Mr. Sex in the sex shop. Then they go home, spray on the stuff. Then they go to the pub and they strike out with the women who they think are lesbians. And originally they go to the toilet and um, Mr. Sex comes out and sees them and makes a, a wry comment in the toilet, goes into the pub. And then after they get turned down by the lesbians, Mr. Sex, uh, calling back to his line earlier, says, it must be fantastic to have such a rich and varied sex life. Rich and Eddie look at each other and then both punch Mr. Sex in the face. And that was that was going to freeze frame and be the end of the episode. <laughs> Why do you think you, I'd be happy to hear that? Why do you <laughs> <take> that <laughs> I was just thinking that. I'm, I'm furious now. I'm furious. Uh, no, I never, I never saw that draft. Okay. Now. <laughs> um, I, I can't imagine why they didn't want to punch Mr. Sex in the face. <laughs> I think usually that the endings were, they had a sort of theme of the ending usually was one of them begetting violence upon the other one. So rather than be, them hitting another one of the characters, it was usually right. they, they, yeah, they set about themselves. Yeah, no, that's just like a victory in a way if they've hit you, I suppose, instead of a failure. Yes, I, they I mean, it's probably, it's probably too successful an ending for them yeah yeah i know i can I, I can sort of see why they would have taken uh, that out hmm. um but we would have loved to have seen mr sex return twice as famous today as i am be <laughs> i'd be asked twice as many questions did they actually hit you mr mcnally yeah they did yeah <laughs> Well, let's have a spin-off of just Mr. Sex. Why not? Like, you know, I know. Get it written, because um, um, why not? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, 
people can't see me now, but I'm sure they've seen me on the television. I, I don't, I probably don't look quite as, as racy as I did when I was in my thirties, <laughs> but, but I could, you know, I could be old Mr. Sex, couldn't I? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and of course in 2016, you had big boots to fill when you starred as Tony Hancock in the lost sitcoms and you re-recorded lots yeah. of episodes of that. Um, the new neighbor was the one that was obviously done for TV. Alongside TV, yeah. John Coulshaw as Sid James. How was it performing scripts by Galton and Simpson, the legends? Um, well, fantastic, because <clears throat> I always um, loved uh, uh, Hancock. And in the 70s, I suppose, um, it, there was a bit of a dearth. We had a few records we could listen to. They weren't repeated because they were in black and white. Mm. Um, I had all the EPs and records. And it was in 1980 that my very good friend, Mel Smith, mm -hmm. called me up and he said, come on over, I've got, I've got, I've got a surprise for you. Mm -hmm. And he apparently, um, don't quote me on this, but apparently him and a friend or, or somebody had raided the BBC archives and quickly recorded some, some um, uh, Tony Hancock episodes. It was sort of bootlegged Tony Hancock. And we went and I, and I watched them for the first time since the mid sixties. And, um, God, that was that was thrilling. And of course, then, you know, they were released on VHS and then on DVD. And then, you know, the, the, all things Hancock, you can you can find it everywhere now. So I, I'd had plenty of time, like 25 years to really immerse myself again in the man. And interestingly enough, when I got offered Hancock, I had been trying to make a movie about him for many years and it didn't work out. And when I got offered to step in and do the lost episodes, I realized, well, that was much better. I didn't really want to do the tears behind the clown and the alcoholic and the, the sad man and the suicide. I wanted to do him at his absolute finest when he was one of the greatest comedians uh, ever on radio and television. Fantastic. Did you, Quite a history, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And Galton and Simpson, of course, you know, produced Hancock's Half Hour and Steptoe and Son. Um, yeah. I was very lucky that when we first started recording the radio show, um, Ray and Alan were, were very much still with us and, and, and very compost mentis. And uh, I, 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 I went to them on the first recording and uh, they, um, I know that Alan said to me, he said, he said that's a, a, a very wonderful homage to a great comedian by a young man. He oh. said, I was probably just turning 60 at the time. <laughs> and, um, and I begged them and they did do it for me. And we recreated a photograph of them and Tony Hancock, which is one of my most treasured images, of course, now that they're gone. Yeah. How wonderful. I mean, Aid mm. has previously joked that him and Rick ripped off Galton and Simpson when they were writing Bottom. Did you ever chat to Rick or, or Aid about their respect for, for the great partnership that Galton and Simpson had been? I can't remember um, <coughs> ever particularly talking about that. I know that. Um, I know that Rick was a fan of Hancock. Um, I, we both shared that because Hancock and me and Rick are all from the same part of the country. We're all Midlanders, so we share a, a great a shared a great sense of um, a great Midland sense of humour. You know, so um, we we obviously did talk about Hancock, but whether or not I can't ever remember discussing Galton and Simpson with them. Um, For Hancock, then what what sort of that was a definite influence on Rick. I think so. I mean, it, Rick was a little younger than me, um, but um, he was obviously very aware of him. And uh, we, um, I seem to remember one, a couple of nights, Rick 
and I went to Mel Smith's house and we would watch like comedy films. And I think one night we did have a bit of a, a Hancock uh, marathon, which was uh, very, very interesting, very funny to be sitting with two, you know, truly great comedians and a wonderful memory for me now that, you know, sadly they're both gone. So a wonderful memory for me to, to, to remember that. Yeah. Yeah, that's the brilliant thing, though. Obviously, you know, comedy brings people together and, you know, even, you know, yeah. amazing people like Rick and Mel and, you know, yourself getting together, watching that your idols, you know, that that that's what comedy. Yeah, gives, it, I mean, it, through time? It, is, it is like that, isn't it? It's like comedy passes down like a baton through generations. And, um, you know, and that's why I'm particularly thrilled that, you know, my son is mid 20s, that that generation they all still love, uh, they're not necessarily they're far as back as Hancock, but certainly the what Hancock was to me, mm. I think Rick and Aid are to a younger generation now. They're the great comedians oh, of their absolutely free life and childhood. So um, it, it's sort of lovely to see that happening again. Mm. And uh, I hope that the next generation will have something of similar stature. Yeah, I, and if not, that we just keep passing on down bottom. And, and I mean, I, I, Steptoe and Son for me as well. I absolutely love reading. Oh, absolutely, so, absolutely. I, I, that was and my dad indeed, showing and me that. Dad's Army, you know, which has mm. which has never never stopped being shown on the television. I don't think since 1969 when it started. It's mm -hmm. extraordinary success, really. Yeah. Dad's, Dad's Army and Steptoe and Bottom all uh, seem to have class as quite an important theme running through them. Do you think that's that? that class is an important concept for, for UK comedy? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the interesting, the interesting thing is that I notice about the difference between um, American comedy, for instance, and, um, and British comedy. Uh, Steptoe and Son is a, a, a point in case. The American version, Stanford and Son, of course, the Son is a really nice and decent bloke because the Americans couldn't stand to have two horrible people in the, uh, as as leads you know so american humor is aspirational in the sense of people achieve their aspirations and um, um, english humor is aspirational in, in that they resolutely fail to achieve anything and if you think of you know uh, uh, rick and aiden bottom if you think of basil faulty david brent these characters are all uh, people with ideas above their station and there are abject failures in life and that's what we find funny, you know. That's what we Brits find funny. People um, get above themselves. <laughs> and you've uh, you've embodied some of these classic characters yourself. So you played Tony Hancock, and you played yeah. Captain Mannering in yeah. both of performing Lost episodes. If mm. are there any other classic comedy characters that you'd like to uh, fill the shoes of? Well, interesting enough, when, when they came to me for Hancock, I, I went great. I can do that. I felt very confident about that because I felt immersed. There's a very funny story. Um, when Neil Pearson, who, who created the Lost Hancocks, went to the BBC with this idea, they said, well, we'll do it only on one condition is that you find, you have to find a great Hancock, you know. <clears throat> and he thought, oh, God, this is going to be a long process. But that night he went to a dinner party and Andy Hamilton was there and he told him his problem. And Andy said, uh, he said, problem solved. It said, uh, Kevin McNally's the man you want. It's hard to stop him doing it, even when he's not playing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so uh, that was great. However, when they came to with, with Mannering, I thought, why on earth would anybody want me to play Captain Mannering? I didn't see myself as that character at all. But I, I said, give me a week. And I, and I, you know, immersed myself in videos and stuff. And I, I found I had a Hancock. I think it's highly unlikely I'll, I'll have a third great 
comedy character I could impersonate okay. uh, in me. If ever, if ever they want to do um, Love Thy Neighbour again, I could do a bit of a Jack Smethurst, I think. But yeah. I think it's highly unlikely that that show will ever see the light of day again. <laughs> Very true. Um, and what about, um, you've also played in your career, you've played Kenneth Clark, you've played Bernard Ingham, and you've played Harold Wilson. Is there, yeah. Are there any other politicians or people in the, in the world of politics that you'd like to play? No, I, I loved playing uh, Ken Clark, and I loved uh, doing it. Again, you see, this uh, um, Harold Wilson was just such a joy because I had been turned down, believe it or not, to play him on stage in the audience with Helen Mirren as, as, uh, as um, Queen Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe that they turned me down. My, my uh, imitation was so good. Um, but then again, it's from my childhood, you see. It's from exactly the same time that I was watching that man, Harold Wilson, was exactly the same time that I was watching um, Tony Hancock. So I, I don't really feel any warmth towards mm. any other politician that I want to play, really. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd have a stab at Jacob Rees-Mogg if, 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 if I was forced to. But, um, I'd have a stab at him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't mean performing him. I yeah. Mean, yeah. 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 When you are playing a real-life person or someone who's been played before, how do you approach the performance? Well... I've talked about this a lot with Kevin Eldon because you know he did a brilliant job um, as as they all did, but particularly him I thought playing Clive Dunn. He was. Uh, uh, I, I, saw, I saw an outtake where he where you you said I'm sorry I was too busy laughing at, at I think it was his entrance or something, but you were too busy you, you were sort of caught up almost like I, I completely. I, it was I think it was the first time we'd interacted as the characters, and I I just couldn't go on. It was just so funny. But we rather disagreed about it because I, I, I remember I was asked this and I said, I suppose, particularly when you're playing, because it's quite a hybrid thing. You're playing an actor who's playing a part that they were famous for. So you, I'm not playing Captain Mannering or I'm not playing Anthony Aloysius Hancock. I'm playing Arthur Lowe playing Mannering and I'm playing Tony Hancock playing Anthony Aloysius Hancock. So I said, it's just shy of a slavish impression to which Kevin said, now I go for the slavish impression myself, uh, and indeed I think he's probably right. I think you just have to immerse yourself. One of the tricky parts of it is, though, it sort of divides your brain a little bit because, on the one hand, you're responding to the other actors as you would with a character that you'd created, but a half of your brain is trying to do that via channeling this other actor doing it. Because if you drift away from that people wouldn't enjoy it nearly half as much i think so it's quite it's quite a sort of a hybrid sort of process really mm. well so, I, thought, I, I thought you did, i thought you did a, a terrific job in both of them so uh, well thank you very much i appreciate that so you've written uh, a fair bit you've written episodes of boon minder and the tv mm. series lockstock um are you yes. still writing uh, and is there anything no, no. Okay. um, um I, and i'll tell you exactly for why back when i was writing with my part uh, with my partner bernard dempsey we would meet up with the producers of any of those shows and we would go to the pub and have a drink and we'd sit around and then one of us would say, um, oh, I know, Arthur has a row with Dave the barman because of something that happened in their past. And they'd go, great. And we'd go away and we'd come and we'd turn up with the script and they would go, terrific, to change this, this and this, and then they would film it. During the course of our career as writers in the late 80s and I suppose up to about 2000, I think Lockstock was, 
it became television by committee. And so, you know, if you wanted to put an idea forward for television, you first of all wrote a document about what it was about, and then you wrote a thing describing each scene, and then you wrote the scenes, and um, and then usually it wouldn't get made and you wouldn't get paid. So um, it became it became what what was a joy. The life and pleasure was sucked out of it by bureaucracy, um, particularly, um, you know, at the, at the, the channels, the ITV and BBC. So, um, no, I, I gave it up, really. I, I, I thought life's too short for this. Shame okay. to hear that, though, Kevin. It is such a shame to hear that is why, presumably, a lot of creativity is getting stunted. I think so. Um, in fact, you know, I was talking about being at this wedding and talking about Bottom the other night. The guy I was talking to was a, a rather famous television writer who I met when he wrote this TV film, um, this wonderful TV film that he, uh, he cast me in. And um, he now writes episodic television. And he says, um, you know, I, I, I do this because I have to make a living, but I, I can't, I can no longer go to somebody at the channel and say, can I make a film about you know this idea i've just got this idea because people won't go for it you know so th that's sort of a shame i mean I, th I there's a balance really because obviously with so much content and streaming there is a lot done but there has been a move towards you know big, big epic fantasy you know and, and and that has its place it's great but um it there's, there's certainly in um British television, there's not a lot of room for um, telling people's stories anymore, really. And the, 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 there is a sort of a formulaic approach, I think, to writing television, which um, I think has sucked some of the life out of it. But it, it's not all gloom and doom. I mean, you know, there's some fantastic stuff out there. What there's British just so, comedy there's are you watching at the moment, have you, or have seen in recent years that you've been... Um, I haven't actually. I haven't been. I, I'm when lockdown happened. Um, I saw it as a great opportunity to just go back and watch all the famous films, uh, oh, my favourite films from my life. So I've got, I've got rather, I've got rather attached to black and white movies from the forties and fifties <laughs> at the moment. So yeah, I, I'm watching a lot of, lot of movies. I don't really watch a lot of television. Do you watch? Um, are you a fan of old um, slapstick stuff like Lauren Hardy and Buster Keaton? Oh. Laurel and Hardy, Buster Keaton, absolutely. My absolute favourites. And, uh, and both of them well above Chaplin for me. I mean, Keaton is just fantastic. And it's rather interesting, actually, as I hear myself sort of whinging about <laughs> how the world has changed. Of course, they all went through that as well. They were all, um, you know, eaten up by the studio system and, and put into into vehicles that did very well but you know was not their best work um mm. particularly about laurel and hardy when they <clears throat> they went on to do those later feature films um with mgm i think and uh and mgm sucked up uh buster keaton and and he no longer had control over his his work so it probably just happens to every generation you know and the next generation um get used to working in that system and then it changes on them you know well, so it's it's probably just an old an old whinge by an old actor well also i think it's interesting that in terms of when we when i think of modern slapstick apart from mr bean the only thing that really comes to mind is actually the work of rick and aid so from the dangerous brothers through the young ones through filthy rich and then into bottom there's not yes really anything... you're, you're probably right aren't you i mean because the sort of um humor of the 21st century i suppose as as events best by the office I, I, I sort of would you say that the the, the 21st century seemed to be the, the the um 
the comedy of embarrassment. The, it's the comedy of embarrassment and the comedy of the sharp comeback, I think. It's all, you yes. know. It, yeah. Um, but, yeah. Uh, you're right. I mean, I can't think of a lot of physical comedy around out there at the moment, which is something of a shame. I know oh, I did a. Uh, yeah. I did a, a, a sitcom with um, that wasn't particularly su successful with George Cole called Dad in the the nineties, and I I tried to do as much physical comedy as I as I could in it, but I just don't think it was very fashionable at, at mm. that point. Yeah, it's gone out of fashion for sure. There's more of a kind of you know, yeah. hyper real, like you say, David Brent, you know, Alan Partridge, you know, mm. and, which is great. Move into real characters I, I, that you could, you know, put yeah. in your situation rather suppose, than exaggerated. You know, I suppose to, to whinge a bit more about <laughs> about the modern world, it's horrible. <laughs> that I, I think one of the problems that happens is there's not a room for everything. You know, I don't know why things get very singular. You know, you, you look at movies. When I started making the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, we would, you know, we'd make them and we'd finish. And then three months later, which is a very short uh, post-production time, it would come out on Labor Day on Memorial Day in America. When we did the last one, we had to wait three years for there to be a weekend in which there wasn't a Marvel film uh, <laughs> being tent-pegged. Yeah. You know, so everything, everything is a bloody big tent peg um, franchise movie now. You know, it's like people get very singular about what they want to watch or or rather the studios get very singular about what they want to put out. And I, I liked it a bit more when there was more variety in, in what you could you could see. You mentioned the sitcom Dad there. Um, I wonder mm. what, what was it like playing opposite George Cole? Oh, wonderful, because he was just a master. I, I knew George pretty well because I'd written for him uh, on, on Minder and he had very much enjoyed our scripts and he, he really uh, was very keen on them, was very complimentary about them. So when I, we got to work together, we, you know, we did have a history. We, we talked about comedy a lot. It was rather interesting, actually. It was maybe seeing the beginning of the device of, of certainly the BBC that they made us... I, I didn't so much mind me, but I, I, I sort of couldn't believe that they did it to George Cole. They made George read with me for um, for Dad. I mean, really. And I was, and I said to him, "We came out." I said, "I just think that's appalling. That they've made you read for this part. You're George fucking Cole, for heaven's sake!" You know. Mm. And he went, "Yeah, oh, well, it's just the way it's going now." You know. I mean, there, there, there are too there are too many people part of the decision making process, you know. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, you know, the BBC are putting out some excellent comedy still. Daisy Haggard's Back to Life um, is a recommendation I give to you. Aid Edmondson's just been in that, but apparently, what's that it called? Back to Life. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm. I, that's that's on. That is on my um, watch list. Yeah, yeah. Because Aid apparently, <laughs> according to his tweet, he he wrote to Daisy to commend the work for the first series, and then she said, you know, do you want to be in the next series? You know. So there is hopefully still a chance for people to <laughs> to kind of get in. But isn't that crazy that you know? Yeah. Well, maybe um, I should drop her a line myself. Yeah, well, I was going to say, is there anyone <laughs> in particular that you would love to work with and maybe, you know, they'll listen to this podcast and we can hook you up? Yeah, <laughs> uh, maybe, yeah maybe she'd like to um, bring back Mr. Sex. That would be nice. Oh, that'd be great. The Mr. Yeah. Sex show by Daisy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So you've worked on uh, an incredibly long list of uh, British TV shows. Are there any mm -hmm. shows or films that you missed out on narrowly or that you wish you were part of? Yes, I mean, many. Uh, absolutely many well, I, and I sort of keep a little bit of tally in my head going but fortunately most of the things I missed out on 
didn't do very well. So that there's not there's not a big thing in my background of something saying, you know, if I'd have got that, my life would have been different. Unfortunately, being, you know, being a, a working character actor, people often say to me, what's your favorite? What's your favorite job? And I'm very lucky enough to be able to say my next one. That's my favorite job. <laughs> so yeah, there's no point sort of sitting around going, what could have been? I mean, I, I've turned a few things down in the past. And, and I, I have to say, touch wood to this day, I, I was probably really correct to do to do all the turning down. But, there, you know, there were parts along the way that, uh, you know, I wish that I had got. Do you have a preference between theatre and film? I know because obviously you're a very accomplished theatre actor as well. You played King, yes, you cast the 300 cinemas playing King Lear at the Globe, and you played Claudius uh, in uh, Hamlet. on Broadway. Yeah, um, I, I think like every actor, when I'm on the stage, I'm thinking, oh God, wouldn't it be great to be in the Caribbean, sitting in my trailer and filming for five minutes a day? And then as soon as you get there, you think, oh, I'd love to be back on the stage, you know, in complete control of my performance. So, I mean, I don't think we as, as, a, as a group of people are ever satisfied. I have to say, though, <clears throat> you mentioned King Lear. Um, that was such an amazing experience that I, 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 have, I haven't been on stage since then. It was 2017. It would have to be something blooming marvellous to get me back on the stage again. Uh, it, it's, it's very hard work, particularly as you get older. And uh, the idea of going and doing something for a long time that you weren't 100% behind is not, um, is not something I'd want to do. I actually am working with Guy Jenkin and Philip Pope at the moment for something they've written that I might... I, I might be tempted to come out of theatrical retirement to do, but uh, we'll see how that goes, really, if we can get anybody interested in it. In terms of uh, screen work, uh, what are you working on at the moment or, or what have you got coming up that you like to share with people? A bit superstitious, but uh, just before I left Chicago last week, I, obviously since the pandemic, I, I haven't worked on American television uh, very much, which I, um, I really like doing. But I, I, I did... Uh, talked to some people on zoom about doing uh, an episode of a, of a new uh, amazon series playing the leading character's father and so i would really like to do that again because i um it's filming in new york and i love doing that and it really appeals to the child in me you know um when i used to watch films set in new york and it was all so glamorous but having said that i've probably completely jinxed it now so <laughs> not said what it is so Okay, tell you what, we'll cut this bit. We'll cut this bit. <laughs> yeah. No, but I've said it. It doesn't matter whether you cut uh, it or not. I've said it. <laughs> yeah. if not, you can always reprise Mr. Sex, hey? We'll, uh, yes, exactly. we'll make that happen. <laughs> uh, but apart from that, um, I, I am, uh, I, I've got a few surprises coming up at the end of the year, a few things I've done. So keep your eyes peeled. Uh, well, but I'm not going to say because um, you have to sign all these non-disclosures. Yeah. It's just they take themselves far too seriously, you know, nowadays in television. Well, I'm glad that you began in, in you know, obviously like in the earlier days and you can tell us that your wealth of experience. It's been a pleasure chatting to you, Kevin, about everything. Um, well, it's we could have talked talk for so much people. longer. There's so much on your CV, <laughs> but Mr. Sex is how you'll always be <laughs> beatable of right. us, I think. <laughs> Thank well, you well I, I, long may I be remembered for Mr. Sex and uh, what a great <laughs> was to work with the uh, great Rick Mail and indeed the great Adrian Edmondson. Absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Kevin. You're welcome. Very nice to talk to you all. Likewise. Bye. Bye. Good luck. Cheers. Bye. See ya. Bye.